Hey, I'm Jason. Hey, I'm Nathan. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Jason, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Um, can I take both options? Although I suppose I'll lean more heavily into the latter. Uh, I'm Jason McIntosh. I um, probably, you know me, Jim, as from uh, Interactive Fiction Land. I am, um, amongst other things, the co-founder of the um, Interactive Fiction Technology Foundation, a nonprofit that's development and study and play of interactive fiction games and other text-based delights. And as far as what I'd like to plug, I would like to plug the Panopticum Budapest, which is, as far as I can tell, I think it's just somebody's basement um, in the middle of uh, Budapest, where I was visiting with my wife last month. We had a wonderful time. Uh, we found this uh, via the excellent website Atlas Obscura, and you can pay a crabby man uh, in a cage a few euro to wander around in the dark. Um, following a garden hose in pitch blackness and uh, bump into other tourists. And it's a wonderful time. I recommend it. That does sound pretty good. I like that it's a panopticon, but you can't see anything. It is a delightful tension this way. Uh, it bills itself as being the prison of Vlad Tepes. And I, I am not convinced that this is accurate. Did you find any fangs on the ground when you're feeling around? And <laughs> Oh, gosh, I hope not. <laughs> Uh, Nathan, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? I'm Nathan Fouts. My game maker name is Mommy's Best Games. And I've made weird stuff like Shoot One Up and Serious Sam Double D. And my newest game is not really my game. It's an arcade game from 1983 called Bumpy Grumpy. And I acquired the rights to it. And now I'm porting it to Steam. It'll be out this year. It's a, you can wishlist it now. If you don't quite remember that game, you probably do. But if you don't quite remember it, you should check out Bumpy Grumpy. Um, it's super fun. Yeah, I played an earlier version of the port. It's pretty. It's a pretty good game. It was, it was pretty accurate, right? To what you remember? Uh, that's the one I never saw in the arcades. I you don't never got to play that one? Oh man, it's so good. It's really fast, really fast pacer. Bumpy, grumpy. Bumpy, grumpy. You remember that one, Jason? I remember bump and jump. I think that's the closest thing I remember. I think it came before because it was '83 when this one came out. I can't remember when bump and jump came out. It sounds like it has more of an emotional arc to it, just going by the title alone. The story is that the gameplay thing is that you're trying to get to work. So um, you got you lost your papers. So there's a little bit of um, it's frantic Frank. He's the main character. So, yeah, it's fun. But that's that's what we're focused on right now. I look forward to checking it out. Cool. Are we ready to start on some topics? Yes. Psyched. Jason, your topic is when I paint my nails, I don't paint my thumbnails. This is because I see my thumbnails all day long, but I don't see my other fingernails nearly as often. And so every time I do, I'm like, whoa, that's what I wrote. And that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's that's the price I pay for putting the entirety of the topic. If you want, you can like just jump in there and like delete everything but the first sentence of your other topic. No. You can edit it on the fly. Do you know what? I No, let's go with that. You've read the lead and I will now uh, proceed with the body of the story, which okay, is this. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. Um, so I started experimenting. I don't think there was a trigger for this. I don't think like I saw anything except I, I would see, uh, men and male presenting persons at work painting their finger. I think it was just people around the office, you know, having started to go to the office again. And I would see, uh, folks with painted nails and I'd be like, I could try that. That's a thing I could try. I'm in New York. Let's do it. And I brought this up with my partner and she was very excited at this idea. And we picked out colors. And the first color we picked out naively for me, just because I, we both like dark green. So I painted 
all of my nails. Well, she painted all of my nails. We were watching a movie and this felt oppressive. All of my fingernails, they looked bruised. And uh, and every time I looked down at my hands, it looked like I was severely injured and my fingers were green. Uh, what 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 has befallen me that that I have these these uh, d- darkly miscolored fingertips? And, and did you um, have people on the street approaching you and asking if you're OK? <laughs> I did have one of my visiting friends because uh, I started with just one fingernail. You painted one fingernail dark green. Yeah, that sounds like you banged it with a hammer. Yes, exactly. Like I, I started there because I thought I would ease into it. And, and you are absolutely <laughs> so correct. Funny. And I had one visiting friend who was extremely online who said like, uh, like tried to like tell me this was like a hanky code thing. And like, oh, that's that says you're into this. And I'm like, oh, come on. But she was probably right. And I didn't have any stranger conversations on the streets of New York than I than I normally do. So I don't think it had that had to do anything with anything. But it, it came to pass that I did like you know, that wasn't working. So I did the other nine. And then, you know, I had this phenomenon where every time I look down at my hands while typing, you might be surprised I have a very typing intensive job. And I'm like, eh, what's going on with my thumbs? Oh yeah, that. Um, So the next time I tried this, which was not long after, first I picked a better color, which was the exact same blue as the blue jeans I wear. So it was always matching with something I was wearing, which looks pretty fantastic if I don't say so myself. And I was thinking about how I did not enjoy looking down at my thumbs. So I just left my thumbs unpainted. This was the the new thing I brought. And this worked splendidly because as I work, and I never really thought about this until I marked my eight fingers that are not thumbs. I very seldom see my non-thumb fingernails uh, in my day-to-day occupation. There are relatively few times where my hands are, where my wrists are curved and my fingers are curved in in such a way, uh, or, or or I'm holding my palms out and away from me in a sort of stop <laughs> uh, gesture, or or I'm shoving a door open or whatever, um, that I see the backs of my fingers. So most of the time, as I was just going about my day-to-day business, my my hands looked looked plain and undecorated the way they have been for almost the entirety of my life. But then occasionally I would catch a glimpse of color and I would say, what, what is this? Oh yes, I I have painted my nails. And instead of looking like a gross injury, it was a a shock of delight every single time. I, I don't know anyone else that has done this. And if they have done this, they have never spoken to me about it. Uh, so I just wanted to, to share this. If you want to experiment (laughs) <laughs> with with uh with nail coloring and you are either willing to do this yourself or you have a good friend or partner who's uh more skilled at it who can uh paint up your nails or you can hire a professional to do it uh consider leaving your thumbs unpainted and see how that suits you and that is the end of that pitch i thought that, that you'd paint the thumbnails because they're pretty and you'd want to see the thumbnails but you don't want to you don't want to burn out on it so it's a surprise each time. Yeah, yeah. If you're, if it would be like painting your, I don't know, painting mm. your pupils green. And so you're seeing nothing but green all the time. Oh, is that what happened? <laughs> yeah. But if you paint your irises green, like if you wear contact lenses, see, that's, mm. that's an excellent point, Jim. So yeah, if you actually wear green sunglasses uh, or yeah, or you actually like, <laughs> yeah, chromaticize your, the insides of your eyes somehow. So everything has a green tint. That's one thing. If you, I don't know how contacts work. I don't wear those. But if you <laughs> can somehow just color your irises without affecting the way that light comes into your into your eyeball, so that every time you look in a mirror, you're like, "Wow, oh yes, excellent." That I think that would be that would be the uh, the the comparison. 
So it's a fun surprise. It is a fun surprise. You're surprised by see you. You're like, ah, oh, look, my fingers. Okay. It, it, I, I would say it. that out loud often. Yeah, I would say, ah, oh, look, my fingers while I was sitting at my computer. <laughs> Once you got past the, the bruised version. Yeah. I see the goth kids paint them black sometimes. And somehow black works better than dark green, but not to, di- not to distract. Like, yeah, but yeah, black goes with everything. In fact, the color that I was seeing, like, oh, uh, guys at work paint was like white. Like, and I'm like, mm. that looks good, actually. Like, I, I, I don't think I could pull that off, but like, maybe if I was bald, because uh, that's what I was saying. I saw like a bald man with white fingernails. And I'm like, you look like an android, but in a cool way. Like, you look like a <laughs> cool Star Wars guy. I don't want to be, I, I cannot pull off that look, but that is a category of fashion that I would like to experiment with starting immediately. Should try and shave your head though. Maybe that's part of it. The bald part. I'm a little scared about it. I think, no, there'd be like a weird bullet shape or something. If I tried that <laughs> a weird wrinkle, you don't know about. No, I don't like that. That would like reveal, reveal structures that I'm not ready to see. <laughs> okay. Give it a few years. Yeah. I mean, you just need like some putty to reshape your head after you shave it. Uh, well, that'd be more of a cool star, star Trek guy. If you get the forehead loaf going, That's true. On. The bumps, yeah, or the two little tentacle things on the or little antennas on his head. Oh yeah, the the uh, Andorians. Yeah, good one. So, Solid. Been watching some Strange New Worlds. It's a good show. I need to get to that. I've not yet. Yeah, this is something that I hadn't really thought about. Where like, if you're you you can tailor your appearance to be what what you want other people to see, but most people don't see you all the time. But I do see, for example, I can see my nose all the time. And so, like, if I did something that's too obvious or too intense to my nose, it would just be a visual. St- I would get overstimulated. Yes. Yeah. So you you definitely have to you have to take that into account. We're like, you're you are mm. going to be seeing like, yeah, I, I, I can. I started paying attention to like where my fingers were after I read this topic. And I was like, yeah, I hardly ever see any nails except my thumbnails. That's interesting. I hope this has not been a distraction. Uh, your 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 awareness of your digits. Staring oh, at my fingers right now. <laughs> oh boy. Kind of Sorry, weird. everybody. It's okay. I'm I'm fun employed right now, so I don't need to worry about. <laughs> He's got time. <laughs> I don't need to worry about uh, about wasting my time looking at my fingers. Do you think this is why people prefer who do uh, decorate their noses like tend to prefer like downward facing jewelry rather than like uh, upward facing piercings that that go into your field of vision? Yeah, well, I would. Yeah, I mean, I would worry then about like what if it's like dangling into my mouth and I start start tasting it. Oh, oh man, God. never mind. <laughs> Unsubscribe. My my wife just got her nose pierced and she's got a stud in there and she's complaining about the booger situation. <laughs> that's fascinating like the booger situation like i don't i don't want to pry i if you will well and I, worse, also right? I also don't know like how much i should say about my wife's inner life yeah that's yeah true. well okay we can steer away from that i'll do well let's leave, leave leave that as it is it seems to be that it it, it forms more harder to access boogers than, than an un, unstudded nose she should have gone like low commit with like a magnetic stud that I, I'm just making this up. You could just drop in there when you feel like it and take it back out. When you, it's got to exist. Well, she'll, here, here's the problem with, we actually made the same joke to her. Mm. And she was like, okay, well, what about when I laugh at something and I snort the stud, the magnet right into my lungs? Then Make what you like do. Neodymium, like really strong. You know? Then what you do is you put the other half of the stud just on your chest. Just take it down, move it down. Just yeah. keep, yeah, that's cool. And then you could start putting like, 
little far side comics on her, like pull out one, you know, on her chest and it holds in place like a fridge. She would love that. <laughs> she could look down at them. What a good idea. <laughs> Why haven't we thought of this before? Let's do this. <laughs> My marriage is saved. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Your podcast doubles as a marriage saver. It's great. Come on here for romantic advice. <laughs> That's table stakes for every podcast. I think we can all agree. That's a good point. That's a good point. I, I really like the idea of like, it's a, it's a romantic advice show, but everybody comes on to give me the host advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got the perpetual wife you, that no one ever knows about or sees and you're always talking about her, but I don't know. We don't know if she's fictional or not. And yeah, you've got all these insane problems that keep overlapping and contradict each other. And you're like, what? She's always going diving, but she's also hiking and she works the F- you know, FBI. I don't understand. Yeah. Just going at it a uh, Columbo style. Exactly. The wife all the time. Lots anyway. of different jobs. Are we uh, ready for another topic? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, Nathan, your topic is jukebox griefing. So I am old enough to enjoy the regular jukebox, but the kids these days, am I right? Um, apparently <laughs> the, way, the, way, the way jukeboxes work now is everyone's lazy and you can sit at your, your table and you can cue, you can send a song to the jukebox from your table. So I, yeah, like a, like a Wi-Fi jukebox. There you go. And sometimes they've got little, uh, they've got little, if you go to one of these places from like the year 2000, those are the best places. Cause those, I love anything that's pre, um, everything's integrated into your phone. I love it when places are like trying to, they're like, it's like 19, you know, 98 or it's like 2001. And we've come up with this technology that exists in the table of the restaurant and you'll be able to access the jukebox from our, you know, proprietary technology. And, but nowadays you can just do it from your phone, which makes a lot more sense. But in any case, the normal version is there, there's some skin in the game. You have to walk physically up to the jukebox stand in line yeah, and then put the same, you know, put the quarter in and then, yeah, you have to take the risk that someone saw you do it. They saw you go in and queue up the songs. They know who's doing it. Yeah. Now what you do with the jukebox griefing is, and I'm just making the phrase, but like I've seen people complain about this and also brag that they've done this, yeah. that they have queued up, you know, like a Freddie Mercury song 20 times in a row and they will yeah. not stop. Like yeah. and it just keeps going. Hey, one of them's fine, but the same song over and over, no matter what, for twenty times, and then the restaurant's got to you know sit there and deal with it or the bar or whatever. Um, and then like, and some songs are some songs are not fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they should not be allowed to do that at all. <laughs> the the jukeboxes are internet connected now, so you can you. It's not just like the two hundred songs that the proprietor decided should be in the jukebox. Yes, it's every everything. It's everything. Yeah, and they should not be allowed to pick them at all, really, honestly. And it's not like the proprietor even thought of those. Like, they didn't, you know, notice that there was all these songs on there. Yeah. Do you have an anecdote? Do you have a person, personal experience with this? No, I'm a, uh, my brother's a, I'm, I know the guy and um, he's young enough and he still goes to bars and stuff. And he's a, he's a professional jukebox griefer. He makes money from <laughs> yes. this somehow. Yeah, they he, they got into a jukebox griefing war, but they didn't know who was who, and so like <laughs> they were fighting over you know who's uh, playing that There's song. A movie and, in this, yeah, yeah. And then I believe, okay, now this I might be just making up, or maybe you know it just sounds like a good idea. I I don't know if it's possible to pay more money to then remove someone's song from the queue. 
That's but a really good idea. I think that's not a real thing, but I think they should do that. Like, I think that's like in-app purchases. In that is job. how you like, become a professional griefer. Yeah. I think you just, yeah, you just start nuking people's, I'll pay $5 to nuke those songs. I don't care. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you can just do that. I don't think that exists, but I feel like he did. They, a real story is they really did fight for like 10 songs in a row about who's going, which again, all this is solved. If you have to physically stand there. Yeah. And not eat your food and stand in the run and you don't complain and stuff in front of the jukebox. But this is like a funny, weird, stupid problem, basically. It's a very stupid problem that people can make other people's lives miserable now in a whole new way. Yeah, no, I have a I have a story about this. My friend of mine told me they were just they were they were marveling at the new uh, internet connected jukeboxes that had everything, and they were just like they did a search and then they were like, Oh wow, there's Aphex Twins Ventolin is in here. And then they just like hit Ventil, they press play on Ventolin. And I don't know if you're familiar with this track, but it's like, a, I mean, it's like EDM, but plus like an incredibly loud, high-pitched whine. It's a bit uh, metal machine <laughs> music. Yes. Special then. That's special. And like people start, like left the room immediately. Like people were just like, I'm <laughs> out of here. They eventually unplugged the jukebox to stop it from playing. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask if there was like a management override, and I suppose it's that. <laughs> they they eventually, yeah, exactly. They eventually, they were like, oh, they also like immediately felt bad about it because they didn't intend to grief people. They were just like marveling at the future that, that we all live in now. Yeah, like. I, I do feel like I should say, like, I, I, I have not knowingly encountered this particular phenomenon, but I do need to say, and I don't know that I've ever told anyone this, Certainly not in my adult life, and I don't know why it would have come up before then. But this definitely happened uh, at at a, at a Papa Gino's pizzeria when I was of a single digit age. I absolutely uh, I I had a bunch of quarters. No, either I had a bunch of quarters in my pocket, or they're just a bunch of credits. I I happened to, I happened to see, and I was the first person to see that the jukebox had a lot of credits sitting there, and I did dial up. Um, beat it by Michael Jackson like 10 times. And I list, I enjoyed that song because I was really into it at the time. I, I must've been nine. And that song <laughs> yeah. was, was, it was current. And, uh, and that, that happened. And I think I got some stink eye from, uh, my, my fellow <laughs> diners, uh, and I didn't care. And, uh, good one. Yeah. <laughs> the next level, the next level would be like being able to dial up certain parts of a song 10 times in a row. Like, I just want to hear the beat it guitar solo 10 times. <laughs> oh yeah. You just want the danceable parts. You want to like reinvent hip hip hop right there. Right. Yeah. On the, on the jukebox. Just, just get the, just get the break beats. I want the, the, the solo to loop. And then I want to bust a rhyme over it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> just right click it. It's an option somewhere. It's somewhere, somewhere in there. It's somewhere in there. And if it isn't, then, you know, that's another, that's another niche we can fill after we're done with the, uh, whatever the first, uh, bizarre business idea that I've already forgotten about was. Do you think they have though the jukebox has like break beats in it? Do you think like you could queue up like I want to play the Ashley's Roach Clip break 50 <laughs> times and then it loops perfectly? Like when you say it's internet connected, like can you like play anything on YouTube or like you what, what is type its library? In, type in the binary of the wave file you want to play. Yeah. As interpretive like ROM hacking. Yeah. Like like <laughs> like the people who like you can like input Super Mario inputs and then you're playing pong or something on your super oh yeah yeah just yeah like do that but with a jukebox and just you could just audio play any binary file and interpret it 
as sound. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't matter what it is. Uh, that brings back memories. I remember doing that. I remember like in, yeah. in Scream Tracker 3 loading up whatever just to see what it sounds like when I play it. It's cool. Yeah. It's fun. Doesn't always sound like a modem <laughs> screeching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely uh I mean it's it's the same thing, right? It's it's binary data yeah, played back thinking. at like yeah. at audio rates. Yeah, exactly. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Let's go. Uh, my topic is Nintendo farmed out the development of Donkey Kong to an outside dev team because they didn't have an in-house video game team yet. Donkey Kong was that team's first game. Their second game was Zaxxon. I saw this was on Schmupulations. I saw that too. Yeah. There was a, a recently translated essay by one of the people on that team who were working at... Oh, I thought for sure I'd be able to find this word in this. Te- I'm looking at this webpage now, and the the, the company name has got to be the Ikigami Tsushinki, which I guess I <laughs> then I assumed I'd be able to pronounce it. Uh, working there in 1981, and was on the team that uh, that did the implementation of Donkey Kong, uh, and it's a pretty lengthy, in-depth essay about like not just how they did the programming, but like how they they negotiated the design to make something that could be a video game because like Miyamoto's ideas were not necessarily like straight away uh, and implementable, implementable as a game. That's cool. Yeah. And, and there, there's like math here about how they figured out how do we calculate a jump? Right. Like to get a parabola, right? Yeah. 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 Super interesting stuff. And like, it just, it made me think about how, you know, 40 years ago, the video game business was so easy to make money in that there were companies that were, that had no stake in it. They were just like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll implement your game idea. And then there were companies that were like, we got to get into video games. We don't have any experience doing it. So they were just like quick hire, hire somebody to make this game idea. So this is back when Nintendo was, was a toy company. So they were like, yeah, we, we make, we make fun things for kids. This video game thing is going somewhere. And they were they were making arcade games, but they didn't have an in-house team yet. They had designed design people, but they didn't have they didn't have game programmers. I got to talk to him and work with Mark Cerny some, and, and I worked with another guy, um, Mike Rodell, that used to work at Atari. And kind of the the gist from both of them was when they were working on games in the early early eighties, it was like they would make the game, it defined the genre, and they're just like, "Well, that's racing games." Um, yeah. Guess we'll just try <laughs> tennis. We'll just do a new thing. Like, like they would literally make one game in the genre for the company and just move on to an entire other genre. We're like, can we do an action game? We should try an action game after we've done, you know, like a, some sort of maybe a shooting game. We should try that. Like, they, yeah. it was so early. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's very exciting. And you can still do that in games. You just need to you need to do less obvious things. Exactly. Yeah, but that but but to your point about how. It was so early that yeah, anything could happen. They were picking the low hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this one. Now we have to think of very specific things like uh, power washing the video game. <laughs> but you know, but if you're the first one to power washing, you're doing okay. Um, hey, Super Mario Sunshine got there first. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I just I did I I read another one maybe on um, time extension. I can't remember who had the interview, but it was maybe with the Wada, and he confirmed. Mario has no last name. (laughs) 
and 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 like and they wanted to they wanted i'm just talking about related to how early you know the early nintendo stuff and um before Jumpman, um miyamoto was calling him um what was he calling it wasn't like, like game mr Man. video or something like mr that. video game he was just video guy yeah video game guy game guy and they just wanted him to be the epitomal you know guy of video games but i didn't only click on it i like those articles but um i clicked on it because i was like oh is this getting into mario brothers the movie and right. you know and we still laugh my family still laughs about mario mario and luigi mario and how stupid that was and yeah the mario's last name was mario to the best of my knowledge that tidbit did come for directly from that movie Oh, yes. no, no, that comes. I'm I'm going to disagree there. I believe that predates it a little bit with the Super Mario Brothers Super Show um, starring the, the, right. the, the WWF wrestler man whose name escapes me at the time. But I absolutely remember enjoying that when I was in high school and the announcer saying, here's Mario, Mario and Luigi Mario. And that was on my television slightly <laughs> oh, before. Gosh. the movie. So bad. It's fascinating. That made me sad. In any case, that makes me sad that they called him Mario Mario. It's just like, don't do that. I was I just felt really good this week when I read the yeah, no, the, the main dude was just like, nah, it's just Mario. He doesn't have a last name. That's Captain dumb. Captain Lou Albano. It bubbled up. I sorry I had to yep. I had to burp that out. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> you did. That was in my cerebellum. Yeah, Mario doesn't have he's not he's not from anywhere. He doesn't have an age. The, the fucked up thing is he actually does have a gender. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But he doesn't have a penis. True. But he does have nipples. Yes, we know that. Canon nipples. We could just say it's a all we know about him. Male presenting nipples. Them <laughs> is that they can grow a mustache. Like, you know what I mean? Like I mean that's that's I think that's part of his skin. That's I think that's just a, a bulbous formation. <laughs> it's just dark and freckled. It's a kind of fungus. It's uh yeah, it's a heavily freckled skin. Yes. I mean, one thing we know from Mario Odyssey is that he is not a human. Because he's in outer space. Because the humans are in uh, Metro Kingdom. That's right. Yeah, humans are fully two, three times the size. New Donk City. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. New Donk City. And then some other thing. He's yeah. some other. He's a Mario. Maybe that's his. He's a yeah. weird little dude. He's species. Yes. Is Mario's. He is a dude. That's for <laughs> sure. A he's a gremlin. <laughs> Miyamoto was on Donkey Kong, right? And yes. that was like whatever the frustrated monkey. Donkey Kong, the, the the stubborn monkey. That was Donkey Kong, right? Something like and that, yeah. He came up with the idea, but then they had to put together the team to make it. Uh, they 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 farmed out development. Do they know who? What? Like what, what? Did they? Did that group get bought up by Nintendo? Did they? You know what I mean? Like no, because that that was that was that was part of the topic, and I didn't get to this, and I meant to. Oh, yeah. uh, that team continued working at uh, Ikigami Tsushinki. On okay. their next project, they made Zaxxon for Sega. Right, you said that. Okay, sorry. Yeah, also a big deal. I mean, yeah. Zaxxon freaking crazy. You know, the isometric view and all that. It's a cool it game. Had a shadow. Yeah, the the positional vertical shadow, very important. That's cool. So they were a pretty big deal. Like, it's crazy that they, they got that farmed out to them. And it doesn't say what they worked on after that, but now I'm I'm curious. Well, I was thinking about, like, Sega has, I guess Nintendo, they have all those internal teams. You know what I mean? Like, um, AM2. Or something like that, and there's a couple internal Sega teams that are always interesting that have eventually split off to do like Clover and whatever, right? Um, Platinum and things like that. But I just didn't know if that early one got bought up. What's that one that made um, all those Pokemon games? 
Was that an internal one for Nintendo or was it an external one? And they it was a, a company that spun like I think it's a company that they that they fully own, if I remember right. Okay, because then they they also made a really cool um, Game Boy game. Uh, it's called the Pokemon Company. The Pokemon, but um, there was like a drilling game that was really fun, like a drilling action game. Drill Dozer. Drill Dozer was made by that Pokemon group, which is like oh. a, a weird, Game Freak. Game Freak. Yeah. Game Freak. That's it. Yeah. It just makes me think of like, man, if they made Donkey Kong, you'd think that Nintendo would have kept them and Zaxxon, but then I guess they're running around with Sega. It's a situation where like they don't like those those people are employed by somebody else. And like I don't know, I don't know what the the business uh, climate was like in Japan in the eighties, but it probably would not have gone over well if they had hunted like all four people on that team. <laughs> That's a yeah, true. Now you make me want to reread Rising Sun, Michael Crichton. <laughs> I think Nintendo's secret weapon was, was their process, which was, among other things, like the willingness to to polish a design until it was really, really good, which is not something you needed to do to make money in those days. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, I remember reading about um, the budget for Super Mario Brothers 3. It was like a team of 10 people working on it for like two years. That is long. Which, like, in 1988 is yeah. Incredible. They were doing like nine months and six months and stuff on a lot of games back then. Yeah. But I still think they're cool. But <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And that's the trick. Like you can make a game, make you can make a good game by accident. Yeah. I think that, ha- I think that happens all the time. And if you're making a game every few months, probably want like, I don't know if, I don't know if you're going to luck into it before you go broke, but, <laughs> uh, but if, you know, if a thousand people are making a game every few months, probably some of them are going to be really good just by accident. And those are going to be the ones you remember. Yeah. And then you have the, the UK game scene, which produced no good games, which is a oh, counterpoint. Hate mail incoming. <laughs> Whoa, wait, what, what time period are we talking about here? Now I'm intrigued. Yeah, no, Where's- I'm talking, I'm talking about like the, the ZX spectrum era. Oh man, no good games. Huh? They made games in like six weeks, and because they were releasing them on uh, cassette tape that was trivially duplicate, duplicable, and so they were like six pounds each. <laughs> the tapes weighed six pounds, and they didn't know what to do. <laughs> I, and I am, I am, I am joking, but also like those games were all every single one of them was rushed. I'm trying to look up the name of this one. Uh, oh yeah, okay. I, re- I just remembered Willie. Uh, Jet Set Willie seems to be the game that every British gamer of a certain age uh, I know uh, rolls out. As I like. I like. Th- I did like Jet Set Willie. Actually, this is the one. Jet Set Willie is one of those like it. It gets its fucking hooks in you by just being impossible, and you, and you sit there like you're you're on the first screen, play the first screen over and over again for like an hour trying to get to the second screen, and you finally do, and then like you run out of lives and have to start over. And there's like 20 of these. It's there's like 20 levels. And there, yeah, there, there's 20 of these. And then there's like, um, my understanding just by like looking at retrospectives about British, the British gaming scene of that era that isn't elite is it's just, you know, that horizontally across um, a thousand clones, the, the style you're playing with. Yeah, just impossible uh, masochistic platformers where every level has a little <laughs> title, which is printed on the screen. And yeah. you just die repeatedly and you get your money's worth out of it that way. And also you're probably a kid and you have a lot of time. Yeah. Yep. I, I personally, I've seen these and I love the, um, I'm in love with the box art from back then. Manic Miner oh, and sure. Willie. They're just garbage. They look awful. And, but like punk rock awful. 
You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. They're so punk. It's nuts. I love it. They're so yucky looking. Like they, somebody drew it and they worked hard on it, but it's just gross. I do like have a, a, um, a really unjustifiable fondness for the, that style of platformer. The, the not, not specifically jet jet set Willie, but the, um, not not Manic Miner, but Jet Set Willy, the one where the sequel to Manic Miner, where you are exploring a mansion and there's the 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 thing where you like you go to the next screen and then the screen it doesn't scroll, it just changes instantly to the new screen mm-hmm. and the screens all have names. I, I'm super into that shit, but because of that, I have played a ton of those games on the original, not not on the hardware, but in emulation, mm-hmm. and none of them are good. <laughs> They're all are they boring? Are they unbalanced? I they're just they're just, they're poorly polished. I think by modern standards, they're just like I have I have no time for this. <laughs> my my well, yes. attention is called elsewhere. Yeah. Yes. Um. But you know, V V V V V V is great. Yeah, and that does have uh, titles on every screen. Yeah, that's it? very much in that. Lineage. I was about to say, like, has any modern game done that? And you have just named it, and that is why I loved V so much um the soundtrack for that is still like that that on my uh, airplane playlist and i've listened to it quite a bit because i've been doing a lot of traveling so that's always on my mind yeah it's a very good soundtrack yeah uh are we ready for another topic sure uh for this topic we're going to be doing a poem the poem is uh called hypothetical explanations for the paradox uh would one of you like to read this poem or shall i i'd be happy to read it <clears throat> Hypothetical explanations for the paradox. Extraterrestrial life is rare or non-existent. No other intelligent species have arisen. Intelligent alien species lack advanced technology. It is the nature of intelligent life to destroy itself. It is the nature of intelligent life to destroy others. Periodic extinction by natural events. Inflation hypothesis and the youngness argument. Intelligent civilizations are too far apart in space or time. It is too expensive to spread physically throughout the galaxy. Human beings have not existed long enough. Humans are not listening properly. Civilizations broadcast detectable radio signals only for a brief period of time. They tend to isolate themselves. They are too alien. Everyone is listening. No one is transmitting. Earth is deliberately not contacted. Earth is purposely isolated. Planetarium hypothesis. It is dangerous to communicate. They are here undetected. They are here unacknowledged. Very good. Very good performance. Thank you. I think you, I think you nailed the intent of the poet there. In case it wasn't clear, this is, um, this is a found poem. It's from the table of contents of the Wikipedia article for the Fermi paradox. And it's a list of uh, possible reasons why we, we haven't met any aliens yet. It feels like, um, like, Life advice? I don't know. It's kind of depressing too. <laughs> yeah. Like our yeah, net- try, try to hurt the wizard wizard every time you see him. Right. It feels like uh, a commentary on the human condition. Oh, I don't know. Like we we we, we tend to isolate. We, yeah. We 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 talk, but we listen, but no one's talking. I don't know. We talk, but no one's listening. We deliberately don't contact anyone. It also sounds like there's several voices in here. Like a lot of them mm. is just like, it's just like giving, you know, yeah. Like there's existential, it begins with, it opens with existential statements about the nature of life. Um, it gets a little bit cynical about how intelligent life tends towards self-destruction. And then it gets kind of bitchy and it's like, well, they're just too alien. 
That's right. <laughs> they isolate themselves and they smell weird. Those are written in a pretty different style too, by by um, the usage of the pronoun they. Like every every other sentence, yeah. like actually uses the the noun straight up. Yeah, which is, humans. Which is alien. Oh, oh, sorry. Well, by they is it talking about humans or aliens? Because I thought it meant it was talking about aliens when it said they are too alien. I think I think the the referent for they is civilizations. Yeah, alien civilizations. But it's also fun to just kind of dwell on each sentence as a interesting, sad yeah. thing. Like I, I think if you pulled one out, I would say it is dangerous to communicate. <laughs> that that just feels like I could wear that on a t-shirt, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's yeah. like really messed up. I don't know. It's very cynical. It feels like you know. I'm still dwelling on the inflation hypothesis because I don't know what that means. I like the sound of it though. Uh, which, which one is that? Five, seven, five, seven inflation hypothesis and the youngness argument. Oh, I get, I mean, just looking at it blindly, I don't have the Wikipedia article in front of me, but I would guess that would have to do with the fact like that's saying, well, the universe is just expanding faster than civilizations, which are limited to light speed can actually communicate with one another. Right. That would be my guess. Inflation hypothesis and, or the youngness argument. Each of those could be a Ray Bradbury story. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, he just sounds like that's his style. So the youngness argument. I like the that. youngness argument. It's about a sexy robot. <laughs> Whoa. I was going to say it's why you, you're you not allowed to have <laughs> Cokes after six for kids. But okay, man. <laughs> I'm going to watch your, your channel instead. It's about an ironic sexy robot. It's going to be okay. Does <laughs> it got a noise like Fran Drescher or like, what's up? Now I don't know if I want to watch this show. <laughs> if a robot is ironically sexy, it's still sexy, right? Yeah, what is? So, like, I would definitely bang that ironically robot. sexy. Like, it would be, like, ironically expensive. Like, is yeah. it expensive or is it not expensive? Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's expensive. You got to pay a lot of money for it, but you're doing it ironically. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but no, no. See, you bought it ironically. You can't be ironically expensive. I don't think you can be ironically sexy either. You know, you are the thing. And then why you did it is, is like why it's ironic. That's what, that's what I'm guessing. Would you, would you, it sounds like you're arguing that there's no such thing as irony. No, 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 no. That's a, that's an intent thing though. Like, yeah. And so sexy is just, it is, or it isn't. That's like, was it expensive? Yeah. Or was it not? You know what I mean? Like, so to me, I don't but know if you could if use the it in intent that was to make something sexy, ironically, then it's ironically sexy. <laughs> okay. All right. That's a, I guess you could circle around that way. I'm, is this like the Bugs Bunny dressing up as a girl? Is that, or is that just me? Are we, are we really? <laughs> it depends. Depends how into that you are. <laughs> Not saying it's shaped in my childhood, like, but like Elmer Fudd certainly finds it sexy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole nother paradox. That is the Fudd paradox. The Fudd paradox. <laughs> another Bradbury story. I'm just saying. <laughs> I just like how it ends with repetition of they are here. They are here. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah, no, that, that was the the perfect place for it to for it to end. So I, I just googled the FUD paradox to see what's up, and the, the result was on r slash gun memes. Oh man, uh huh. Is that why he is that duck season versus rabbit season? Like, what's the paradox? I I can't figure it out. I clicked through and like so like the the comment has been deleted. So oh I oh damn. Now we get to just make this up. Like, what is the FUD paradox? I think FUD is a term of art within the, the gun community. Oh, no, don't, don't. I don't want to know. Okay, no, all right. Please don't tell me whatever that means. Yeah. Okay, I, all I right. I, I always hate when somebody goes, 
oh, that word? I'm like, oh, don't tell me whatever some crazy outside group is saying this word means. You know, <laughs> like I just I, I just want to eat yeah. salad and I just want to toss salad. I don't know what you're talking about. So. <laughs> and no one says that in my real life, so I don't want to know it's a bad thing and I never want to know what it means. So Okay. I just found a definition of FUD and I won't read it to you. Is it, is it not too bad if it's if it's Oh, it's fine. I don't. Okay, if it's fine, then it's fine. I just don't want it something like it's, super it's, freaky. It's it's no waffle stomp, that's for sure. Okay, see, I don't know what that means either. Don't and unfortunately, I don't engage in whatever. <laughs> what fud? Uh, a fud is a gun owner who supports traditional hunting guns, but favors gun control for guns such as handguns or tactical rifles. Oh, I think I'm one of those. Yeah. Yeah, I'm totally fine with people shooting deer and stuff, but I don't need like giant you know, guns on the street. And how, how are you, how do you feel about this? Well, I'm, I'm, what do you mean? The, the FUD paradox? Uh, no, how, like now are you, are you incorporating this into your identity now? Did I ruin it? Is it, no, is it... no that's, that's stupid. I'm not going to say that. That's okay. absolutely stupid. No one, right. no one knows what they're talking about. That's only on one little tiny forum. So I'm not. Are no. we still talking about gender expansive anthropomorphic rabbits? I, I, yes, I, I, yeah. I lost the track. Okay. <laughs> that's fine. I do think it's a, um, a derogatory. Oh, well, on a gun forum, sure, I could see that. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yep. I also vote Democrat, so they probably hate that, too. Oh, yeah. Do, do they get this podcast where you live? <laughs> well, there's this one uh, radio station I'll have to see. I'll check in with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't figure out this poem's rhyme scheme. It's, it's, un, it's unapproachable. Yeah, I, I gave up on meter <laughs> partway in, and I was just going for drama. Yeah, I think the drama that worked. That was good. That was if yeah. If this isn't a poem, I'm sorry, I don't know the term. But what do you call? Is this an essay? What do you call a tiny little prose? This little thing. If it's not, you know what I mean. Like, oh, I had called this a found poem. Yeah, it's it's literally a table of contents from. Sure, sure, but I mean, like, if you wrote this and it had no meter or rhyme or anything. Oh, is is that? uh, It's not blank verse, is it? That's what I was kind of getting at. Yeah, it's like if it's not a poem, what it, or it, I guess uh, if it is a poem. Well, it's got line breaks, so. Oh, that is okay. That makes yeah. sense. I can I can dig that. <laughs> Apparently, blank verse usually has a meter. Yeah, I knew. I, as soon as I said it, I'm like, that's not the correct one. That's not the right term. I like arguing. It sounds like it should be, but it is not. <laughs> Free verse is poetry that does not rhyme or have a regular meter. There we okay, go. So, there we go. Yeah, I kind of like learning about art and you know what I mean, like nerdy definitions of art and stuff like that so it's fun yeah. free verse i've heard that i just forgot so a classic um 1990s mac software publisher creators of burning free monkey verse. solitaire and jared butcher of songs which if you used a macintosh computer in the 1990s you held on to every game publisher very tightly because <laughs> there was three <laughs> precisely there's only three yeah uh, it looks like it was uh it was on ios like 10 years ago. Jared Butcher of Song, I mean. Oh, yeah. No, they, they they would have ported that. They would have ported that. That's that's true. Blast from the past, now in your pocket. And and probably not on iOS anymore. Uh, I would I would not make that wager. Yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Uh, Nathan, your topic is thinking about RGB color programming for games, then wondering about how the color actually happens on monitors. So I don't know if this is embarrassing or not, but I'll just say I have like a physics degree from college. And for some reason, I suddenly like locked up in my head because I program games and do a lot of RGB, you know, nonsense. Right. And so I suddenly started thinking like, wait, 
how is it mixing colors? For some reason, I really got hung up on this. And like, how do TVs actually mix colors? And then it's like, it's one of those things where it's straightforward, but then it is complicated because there's just well, red, there's, green, yeah, blue. Yeah. There's there's physics to it. And there's also like psychology, not, not psychology, but like uh, the physiology of the brain, I guess, to it. Yeah. Like that's, that's a factor as well. Because yeah, it's complicated and it doesn't, doesn't mix the colors. It just shows you those, it shows you red, green, and blue and your brain mixes them. Now right. I'm suddenly wondering if like, that's the same for animals. Like when my cat is like swatting at Kratos, when my wife is playing God of War, does she actually, is she actually seeing the same things we are? Or is there just like moving light blobs that are. <laughs> well, yeah, animals, I mean... as, to the best of my knowledge, animals have, they do not have the same persistence of vision that we do. So like they might see like right. much more flicker. Yeah. Basically uh, and, a, and like they, a complicated laser pointer. And they don't have the same like set of primary colors that we do. Right. And so, so I started reading about it and I was like, oh, right. Of course, RGB. Yeah. There's the little, you know, pixels. And then it was like, it's lighting up phosphors. And I was like, well, that's cool. What's in those? <laughs> and so then there's actual chemical elements for each one. Like, you know, I don't know, strontium's involved and cobalt and stuff like that. Yeah. And, but then, then you get into all that stuff about like, what is blue? Like how blue is blue uh -huh. and how green is green. And uh -huh. what, what, and it's like, oh man, that's so cool that they, they got to like dig up the actual element and then decide how close to green are we getting here? Yeah. You know, and, and, and then that led to apparently like, like the regular um, red, um, yellow, blue mixing that you do with paints. Yeah. You can call it subtractive. Right. I, I right. And then we do additive on games or software we do additive and software where if you put all three together they magic make white yeah right but in paints they make brown essentially you know they say <laughs> yeah it just makes darker so it goes dark but yeah i started to get into like enjoying reading about the phosphors in the in the monitors and then they're like saying the ideal wavelength of this and i was just like man it's weird that we turn a number into a color i guess that's, <laughs> it is yeah because colors are so complicated I think that's fascinating. And, and what's we really weird about the numbers into colors isn't like you just had a list of a whole bunch of colors and you listed them and those are the numbers you associate. The numbers like work. They do like you can do color math. That blows my mind. You know what I mean? Like that we I guess that's what is amazing is that we went from one um, method of thinking of color that everyone can do, which is paints and nature and like laying some leaves one on top of the other. You know what I mean? Like you can mix like that in real life. If we made up a new color method, <laughs> like in the computer and it works, like that's crazy to me. I don't know. So I just went on a little rabbit hole in there and it was really fun. Made me appreciate it even you, more. You can go on another rabbit hole, which is where do paints come from? All the colors of paint that you see, like someone had to source pigments they have to figure out like, and every one of them has like some weird biological origin story or, or I would love a book by, about that. You know what I mean? Like other than unless it, unless it gets into blood diamonds and I don't want to know because I do like um, to paint. So I don't want to hear that. Like, you know, cobalt blue is evil or something like that, but I, I mean, yeah. I need that medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them, some of them are made from animals. Well, that's okay. Did you, did you, have you heard about mummy Brown? I was going to say, Jim wants to get straight into mummy Brown. That's what he's totally <laughs> leading up to. I saw that. I know about like the shells and stuff like that that they grind up. But tell me about Mummy Brown. I don't know about Mummy Brown. It's made from mummies. That's right in the name. It's made of mummies, buddy. 
Well, then is it super expensive or what? They ran out. (laughs) So you're telling me when I'm watching old episodes of Bob Ross, I can't follow along anymore. (laughs) This was from like the 18th century, I think. Oh, okay. So Bob Ross, I'm going to put the colors on the screen at the bottom. And uh, this is um, this is Pope White and Pope White and Mummy Brown. And yeah. He doesn't do that. Like these yeah, it's, it's made from popes. It's even more expensive. <laughs> Bad Bob Ross. I had I didn't hadn't thought about that. That like the colors in our CRTs, they had to source those from somewhere too. I can't like I can't I couldn't stop looking at TVs for a while. You know what I mean? I was just like, how many freaking colors and you know what I mean? And we're throwing them away and they're just breaking all the time and stuff like that. And it's like that's nuts. Yeah. And then we just they the CES they just came up with that. The better version of the see-through TV. I don't know if you guys saw that story. That do, it's do like. We, a, wait, do we need a see-through TV? Is that what's that? What's that for? Like, I don't know. I just got into an argument with a friend today, and I was just <laughs> like, um, "Please tell me an application of this." Someone, someone was like, "We invented a see-through TV," and then someone else was like, "We need to figure out how we need to come up with some uses for this stat." Is that like for AR stuff? You strap it to your face? Yeah, I guess so. No, it gets better. It gets better because. You're not going to believe how stupid this is. The see-through TV. Okay, so, right? You're like, okay, fine. And they made it extra vibrant. Fine. Like, they make the colors more vibrant. It looks it looks super cool. And I'm going to just offer that the only application of this device is to look cool at CES. That's it. It looks <laughs> awesome. It's a piece of glass sticking out of a tabletop. And then it projects paint splashing all over it. I think it's the only thing it can do. I'm joking. But anyway, it, it looks super cool. This is real. There's another, there's another usage. To look cool in movies. If, if you're going to remake Blade, the only thing that can improve the dance techno scene is to have those, you know, monitors splashing, you know, like sticking up and stuff. Anyway, I, I think this is a real add-on that somehow someone at the companies making this these types of TVs said with a straight face, they're like, oh, if you want an even better picture, there's a thin film you can pull up behind the TV and it'll look more vibrant. That's called the back of a TV. <laughs> For real, I think you could put you can cover up the back of the see-through TV and it'll look even better, aka a TV. So don't know. Opaque see-through TV. <laughs> the opaque see-through TV. Boom. Yes. I, I miss the the overlays you would put on top of your TV while you're playing a video game. The Odyssey good, uh, man. 2000. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Those are good. When when I was in college, I was in, in I was in the bad computer lab sometimes. And um, do my like little Pascal programs in there, and they had this overlay on them that I don't know. It was like I, if you talk about Mummy Brown, I think this version of orange green is gone now. I don't think you can get a monitor that glows this disgustingly orange green anymore. It's probably sourced from some you know long dead person or creature. But yeah, you can't get amber monitors either. Yeah, it's just hideous. I guess it wasn't an overlay, but for some reason, I don't know what the point of this was, but there was a plastic overlay on these old college monitors that had like little ribs on it, like corduroy. <laughs> right. It was so gross looking. I, I feel like I've seen this. and I'm not sure. What, what was that? It was like ta- tactile. Like, yes, it wasn't visual. It was tactile ribs. These, these ribs were like a quarter inch thick like deep like you are could, they like non-slip so you could like rub the computer the and it monitor. wouldn't slip out if it's been raining or yeah i mean like you had to look you were looking through this translucent material oh, you're looking through the, the ribs yeah 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 imagine you stuck some 
it's hard like it's kind of like a heat sink or something but it was thin little it was vertical it ran vertical and it was this odd little rib stuff stuck to the view you were looking through it and the disgusting orange brown was glowing inside it you know what i mean like it sounds very terry gilliam it sounds like something out of brazil i like that (laughs) yeah it would fit right into 12 monkeys or you know something like that and i would rub my fingers back and forth across when i was bored and like programming and i would sit there There and and you you discovered the reason yeah it was probably a it's a fidget toy, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's like, yeah. Groundbreaking. I don't know why those are on there, but um now now I'm curious. I feel like I, I feel like I've encountered this, but I can't place it. And I kind of liked going to that um computer lab because it felt like I was stepping back in time, you know. It was it was a sad little place. Yeah. Well, anyway, now now that we have um displays you can put things behind, we can we can have overlays and underlays. <laughs> we can have backgrounds on the video games as well as foregrounds. I'll tell you what, I am down for a new, if the Switch 2 says it is a two-screen system, but what happens is one screen is translucent and the other screen is your TV, and you get like real 3D, you know what I mean? Like you get this parallax, like there's the translucent screen closer to you is one situation, and then there's the background, and it'll be like, oh, full 3D. That would be yeah. pretty cool. That's probably what the Switch 2 is going to be like, I guess. That's, that's exactly, I think you nailed it. Yeah, I think so. The three the 3DS had a textured screen like you were talking about. Actually, I don't think it was exposed, but the, like internally. It had secret textures. Yes, that was that was how the 3D worked. <laughs> Maybe you were secretly looking at 3D monitors. For on the 3DS, it kind of makes me sad. Kind of, I wouldn't mind checking it out now, but getting it after the fact. Yeah, you, you get a 3DS, get an R4, just put every game on it. Uh, they they don't sell 3 3D, 3DS games anymore. They shut the shop down, so it's totally ethical to pirate everything. Oh, nice. I like that. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I should think so. Jason, do you want me to just read the first sentence of this? <laughs> um, Go ahead and read the first sentence of this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bach drew a loopy doodle at the top of the cover of his original manuscript for the well-tempered clavier. Or clavier. How do you, I don't know how to pronounce that. I also don't. There's all kinds of words in this story I don't know how to pronounce because they're Austrian. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so speaking of, of rabbit holes, this, this is actually pairs well with, uh, with Nathan's uh, story about diving into how colors work. I've very recently been getting into music theory. And just very, very surface level so far. But like this all started last fall. I was visiting, uh, my wife and I were visiting her her parents living in uh, North Carolina. We went to a family reunion there in Asheville. In Asheville is the Moogseum. Maybe they say Moogseum. Maybe they pronounce it both ways. (laughs) But it is a wonderfully laid out, extremely small, but very ingeniously laid out um, museum about Bob Moog's uh, life's work including his many wonderful uh, machines and the machines and, and, and like the theremins and the synthesizers, analog and digital that his his company and his and he and his colleagues put out over his lifetime. And uh, that really got the it has like one of the most fantastic. Uh, none of this is the actual topic, but I'm just I'm leading up to it because it's it's cool. If in Asheville, you should totally check this out. It has one of the single most wonderful interactive exhibits of a thing that I have seen, which is an interactive exhibit in the back of this tiny little museum of how an analog synthesizer works. Yeah. And it has a giant knob where you can control the speed of time. That's cool. And a very good animation 
showing like, and if you turn it all the way to the left, you see individual electrons moving around the wires and you can bounce them back and forth on the oscillators. It is so good. What a fun project. I would love to work on something like that. It is so good. And it made me be like, I'm becoming a middle-aged man. I am going, I want to know more about analog synthesizers. It's time. (laughs) I feel the call. (laughs) I started diving into this and I ended up just learning. Like, I, I don't even know how a keyboard works, man. Like I never took piano lessons as a kid. Uh, all these things have keyboards on them. I should just get some basic vocabulary. So I started learning piano. Speaking of uh, GarageBand, which I quit because this we record this on Zoom. Thank you, Jim. All of which is to say, on a train trip a couple of months ago, I was just really luxuriating in just, just a full-on Wikipedia link uh, follow one after the other in, in a way that I have not done in a long time. Just reading, just soaking in music theory uh, articles. And I ended up on the article about Bach's uh, well-tempered clavier. Let's just, let's just go with that. Sure. And um, that is Bach, right? Yes, it is. Okay, good. Phew. And I was reading this story. So, so well-tempered clavier, it's a, it's a, it's a book he wrote of basically, uh, Hey, I, because I'm Bach, I have written a, basically a learning piece for every single E uh, that you, that you can play on a piano. So there's, there's, there's one, like, how does the, first paragraph saying it's a prelude and a fugue in all 24 major and minor keys for the keyboard. Right. And what I want to discuss though, is not the content of it, but the front cover. And unfortunately there's no link to, I could only link to the article, but th- there's a, a, a header uh, intended to tuning and then a subheader called title page tuning interpretations. So apparently uh, and this is this is absolutely getting outside of my own uh, knowledge of music theory. Like I said, I'm just I'm a very service level student here. And when we get into like what a, a tuning a keyboard or piano even means, I'm like, yes, I understand that these are things you can tune. And that's the depth of my knowledge. But nowhere in the document did Bach say, you know, when I say a well-tempered clavier, I mean, you must tune it this way. It just left it to future generations of scholars to guess like, well, how does he intend you actually prepare the keyboard or the piano or uh, first before you actually start playing these these pieces? And apparently starting around, <laughs> this is so good, uh, <laughs> starting around 2000, a, a, a group of musical theorists, and I cannot, I, it almost seems like a joke. There's no context about this in this article, but there's a list of names and years which are all after 2000 of this person first wheeled out this theory that, okay, on the front cover of Bach's original manuscript, and I mean manuscript literally, it's, it's, this, it's this document that he wrote out longhand, at the top margin of the front cover is a looping doodle. He just took his pen and he, and he made some loop-de-loops. Um, I, I also, uh, much like I don't know anything about music theory, I don't know anything about uh, penmanship of 1722 and uh, and handwriting technology that existed at that time. The doodle certainly looks like the sort of thing I would draw had I a ballpoint pen and I was just warming it up before writing some stuff. I realized <laughs> Bach was not using a ballpoint pen, but it sort of looks like just a warming up thing. Like, blah, 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 blah. Okay, now I'm going to write the title of this book and what it is and then sign my name at the bottom. Um, but anyway, yeah, there, there's just this, this goopy line across the top. And I will just read to you what it says for the first bullet under the, the, the header uh, title page tuning interpretations. Um, actually the lead in paragraph in the first bullet. More recently, there has been a series of proposals of temperaments derived from the handwritten doodle of loops on the title page of Bach's 
personal 1722 manuscript. In the course of studying German Baroque organ tunings, Andreas Sparske, excuse me, Andreas, I don't know how to pronounce your name, assigned mathematical and acoustic meaning to the loops. Citation needed. Each loop, he argued, represents a fifth in the sequence for tuning the keyboard starting from A. From this, he devised a recursive tuning algorithm resembling the Collatz conjecture in mathematics. It subtracts one beat per second each time box diagram hits a non-empty loop. In 2006, he retracted his 1998 proposal based upon A equals uh, 420 hertz and replaced it with another with A set to 410 hertz. Michael Zapt in 2001 reinterpreted the loops as indicating the rate of beating of different fifths in a given range of the keyboard in terms of seconds per beats with the tuning now starting on C. Meanwhile, in 2004, and it, it continues in that in that uh, vein. So I just love the fact that here is this classic musical piece and a, a, a section, a subsection of musical theorists looked at a doodle on the front cover and just lost their minds. 275 years after it was published. And that delights me a great deal. And I think music has a lot to teach us. That's all. <laughs> Something about the work of that era, or by that era, I mean anything older than a couple hundred years, really attracts the conspiracy theorists because like Shakespeare gets that shit too. <laughs> I would argue this this falls under um, art appreciation where, I mean, I also got a minor in art and what I learned from that is the way to BS your way out of anything related to interpretation. And I just love that they went to town on those doodles at the top of that page. I'm staring at them right now. What's his name? Andreas is out of his mind. Like those are just some squiggles, man. Like no way on earth with uh, those tuning instructions. But, but Bach was such a genius. There's no way. Yeah. That he... he was such a genius. He probably didn't fart either. Like I'm sure <laughs> nothing he did was without intention. Yeah. <laughs> the, the farts were meaningful. You have to measure the time between them. Yeah, he farted meaningfully. Yes, I, that's 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 where that takes me. Is um, yeah, nothing. You, nothing ever is unintentional with these with geniuses. That's crazy. I can't believe they they went spiraling out of control. Kind of like the spirals at the top of the title page. There, you've got me convinced. You brought it around, and it, it's everything's connected. It is a, it, the whole thing is a bit Da Vinci Code in that if you are convinced <laughs> that. A, a genius centuries in the past, uh, like look at this body of work that has molded, that has ha- had such a huge impact on Western civilization since clearly every mark made by this person um, was with extreme great intent and and heavy with meaning and we must dig it out. I, I get the impulse because I dig deep on the works that I care about the most. Yeah, I, I agree. Can, you can certainly hang, you know, use it. It's free to use it as a as a framework for inspiration. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's separate for, from like <laughs> stating objective meaning. Yeah. Well, so what these guys need is they need something like a speedrun community. <laughs> <laughs> they need the people who um, disassemble games in order to find new exploits. Yep. And then they need the people who actually execute the exploits to go fast. And then they need like the the summoning salt people to do like documentaries about it. And then they need like a huge audience on Twitch to do AGDQ. And then they need to the people who like who ban frog fractions from AG, AGDQ because it's too salacious. <laughs> like all of these are crucial to the the speed running ethos. And we, you just need something like that, like a community working together on something that like. 
you don't have to worry about whether it's true or not because it's some bullshit you made up and you just agreed to care about it. So we need to announce uh, Clavier Jam 2024. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Well, yes, <laughs> I think that would work. Only if Clavier Jam 2024 is actually Frog Fractions 3. Yeah, well, catch up, man. It's up to Frog Fractions 8 now. Oh, really? Dang. Frog Fraction 7 is bumpy grumpy. <laughs> hey, by the way, if you going forward, when I want to win an argument, I'm just going to bring up the Colot's conjecture. <laughs> well, the Colot's conjecture clearly states, as I'm sure you know. Clearly states, I don't need to put away the dishes. Well, this is this is, this is how I was. I could make the argument that, like, my, I promised my Kickstarter backers that I would not put away the dishes. How dare you let down the community? Yeah, I think I think Colot's conjecture is my new Antikythera mechanism. Whenever I want to win any kind of, it works. It works in every situation. It, it'll it'll work in a similar fashion. Yeah, it's great. It's just to to dig in a little bit more on this on the speed running metaphor. So yeah. we have the the original these 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 hungry music theorists yeah. who are reaching out and they need to connect. Like, what's the next what's the next layer? Like, who would who would pick who would pick up what they're what they're putting down and and build something on that? You gotta you gotta get people to watch, right? Like, you that's how you, you gotta get people to yeah, care. You need well, you you don't actually need an audience to have a speedrunning community. Like that's been proven <laughs> again and again. Yeah, I I don't know like who would pick that up, but like there are there are people out there who like me for example who like I will dive deep on any group of people doing any weird hyperfixation thing if I find out about it. I'm like oh like holy shit these guys that's so good and then I'll I'll, I'll it'll be my thing for like three days and then I'll move on and so like all you need to do is these these folks need to be like okay we're doing this for the people who are obsessed with reading about hyperfixations for three days, they're just going to fly by. It's okay if they don't, we don't have one of those right now because they'll show up. I like how far, yeah, 1722, it's pretty solid distance in the past to basically say whatever you want about it at this point. I guess you could sponsor AGDQ. You could sponsor it and have a segment where everybody's speed running the, uh, the clavier etudes. Yeah. The etude in, in B minor. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be different different uh, categories for this because you've got the category where you're playing uh, all the notes as fast as possible uh, in the original rhythm. And then there's the category where you're just playing all the notes as fast as possible, ignoring the original rhythm, where you're just trying to get the notes, the right notes played. Mm. And I don't know which one would be worse to listen to. <laughs> then, then, yeah, then you get into, uh, did, did they call it a, a black black midi? Where you just like you have the 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 piano roll of it is just solid bars that yeah, just that's, goes, that's black that's black MIDI yeah there you go mm. turn the entire clavier into a single black MIDI that would last twelve and a half seconds yeah this is gonna require like a repairman on site <laughs> to, to retune it after oh, would every- it be would it yeah it would be played on a physical uh, period keyboard, which would be completely destroyed by the end of the event. Yes. Yeah. So it would be a tool assisted speed. There you go. It's a tool. It's TAS. That's what we need. It's a TAS on period equipment. It's not emulated. It's on original hardware. And the hardware gets used up with every, every performance. So completely consumed. There's, there is a limited number of these things in existence. And so after they're all used up, it's like mummy Brown. You just can't, the art is over, the art is finished. You did it. Yeah. 
I'm liking this. I just think, by the way, Jason, I think I've been fixated on Moog pronunciation since you started. I'm sorry. Like, I'm also sorry. <laughs> like, you kind of, I'm like really like knocked me off my heels there because I'm just like, there's another way to say Moog. Oh I, no! I think it. I think you know what? I'm yeah. The not, guy's last name is Moog. It's Moog. It's Moog. It's yeah, pronounced Moog. Moog. Oh That's my there's a, there's gosh! A called the Moog Rogue. It it wouldn't work if it was the Moog Rogue. But they called the space you go to the M O O G Zium, right? Like Which the, is a museum, like a Moog Moogzium. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, they expect you to say the Moogzium. Uh, both in your court, Jim. Yeah, they no, don't I, make. You, oh, the Moogzium. Yeah, well, <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't invalidate <laughs> the guy's last name. <laughs> that explains it perfectly. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's all the time we have for topic lords. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Ah, uh, my. Uh, the home domain thing is jmac.org. I am also on the Fediverse at jmac, that's J-M-A-C, at masto.nyc. I saw a billboard in San Francisco mentioning the Fediverse, F-E-T-A-verse. Delicious. And I was like, is this a is this a joke about, about Mastodon? I don't think it was. I think they were just trying to reference the food stuff. <laughs> and I like that. I should say yes. The Fediverse, aka Mastodon, yeah, which is yeah, technically well, not the same, but also they're but, the same. But that's what everybody says. Yeah. Uh, and Nathan, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I do want it. You should find me. I'm Mommy's Best Games everywhere um, on Blue Sky and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and stuff. And you know what? You can find me in real life. I will be at Magfest next week with my arcade recreation of Bumpy Grumpy in real life. You should come out. Please wear a mask because I'm very scared of the COVID, but like, we got boosted and everything. But still, it's going to be it's going to be an awesome show. It's the music and game show in Washington, D.C. So I hope to see some people there. I would love to talk in a future episode about making an arcade game. It is a blast. An arcade cabinet. Yeah. Knock that one off your life goal. It's just the best. All right, thanks so much for being on. Thank you, guys. A lot of fun. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!